Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. This week's episode is a very special episode. Well, because it's my birthday, and I'm joined by one of my more favorite people, David Camp. He's a Vanity Fair contributor, author of the famous United States of Arugula, and most recently the book, Sunny Days, a brilliant, delightful, enlightening history of Sesame Street, Free to Be You and Me, and other TV shows that shaped me and my childhood. This means I get to talk about the secret life of cookies with Cookie Monster himself on my birthday. What could be better? Also, I make soft peanut butter chocolate chip cookies good enough to make a Cookie Monster proud. <gasps> this episode is guaranteed to sweep the clouds away. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome, Mr. David Camp, world famous David Camp, to my kitchen and also to yours. And I'm so delighted to be here with you, Marissa, on your birthday podcast. <laughs> How did you know it was my birthday, David? I don't know. I mean, just like you tell the world that you have naturally curly hair, like Frida from Peanuts, you you yeah. like to you like to advertise things about yourself, don't you? It's true. I'm very outgoing, kind of non-reticent. I'm I'm you know the extroverted introvert. Yes. Well, it's a privilege to spend your fifty birthday. With you. I'm sorry. I think I think we misheard all of that. As I'm only as my son, I've been taught my son to say 29 years old. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and he almost says it believingly um, or believably. Anyway, you, more importantly, you, enough about me. That's more than enough about me. You are David Camp and you have a lot of great things um, in your past now that you're also 50, because you are too. Um, you have and are a Vanity Fair contributing writer. And you also wrote probably one of the most, and I hate using this word around you because I just want to laugh when I use it around you. Seminal works of food history of oh, the 20th no, century. No. <laughs> Seminal. <laughs> um, <laughs> the United States of Arugula. Yes. Um, and also a book that um, I, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show today, because it sort of wraps up all my favorite things in one, because you're nice. And your book is called Sunny Days. And it's all about children's television from the earlier part of uh, my life. And it is a fantastic book filled with nostalgia and also um, a real insight into what was going on behind the scenes. It was more than just fuzzy Muppets. Right, this is, this it, is the late 60s to the early 70s. And the idea is um, since we are 50 years old, <laughs> um, this was, these were the formative years of our early childhood. So about like 68 to 75 and the book charts the development of Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Marlo Thomas's Free to Be You and Me, um, the show Zoom from WGBH in Boston, and other shows that Schoolhouse Rock's another one. I never thought about it this way until a few years ago, but those shows together constituted a social movement, meaning they weren't just the slate of fun kids program. That was a moment when a bunch of progressive people in entertainment and academia and media and education said, we're gonna create something cool to teach through television. And so that's what interested me in making a book out of it. Wasn't it it's, I love that people have a nostalgic pleasure in trawling through their old memories while reading the book, but I also want it to be sort of a, a, a map, a guidebook for how to do this again. 
Yeah, it's it's a fantastic social history as well as being a very warm and fuzzy feeling about, you know, meeting up with my old friends, Cara, Carol and Paula from the Magic Garden, right. which only really means something to people who grew up in the D WPIX region, mm. which was Channel 11, East Coast. And I am um, from New York City. And they, I could sing you every song they ever sang. I could sing you almost everything from Zoom and could tell you everything. In fact, I, I have to say this before we begin, Hubai Frubin. You know, I'm terrible at OBW. It's, it's like they don't have an aptitude for it. I'm bad at languages in general, you know? And, and to me, <laughs> even Pig Latin and um, OBW, and even um, I can, you know, I can still do this. And I, I, uh, and I, you, you, we can't do visual cues on a podcast, by the way. Okay, everybody, I'm doing the arm thing on the podcast for all of you that watched Zoom. And for me, when, this pandemic started and Zoom started becoming very popular, I would cutely refer to it as 02134. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought it was, it was yeah, I thought it was cute. Everyone under 45, but <laughs> exactly. I'll tell you what, it helped me because this book was released relatively early in the pandemic. So not ideal timing, but the one nice hook that it gave everyone was, well, now you're going to talk about a Zoom that's not the Zoom that we're all using right now. And I actually indeed did a Zoom with the now grown cast of Zoom, including Bernadette Yao, who did the arm thing, who was wonderful, by the way. And for those of us who haven't yet read your book, but know about this weird arm or great arm movement that we all practiced at home, quirky arm movement from Bernadette Yao, can you remember the story behind it? Yeah, Bernadette was, was, well, they wanted to have in Boston, the Boston area, this um, integrated cast of people from different uh, ethnic backgrounds and different class backgrounds. And it was the show Zoom that was kind of the first user-generated content. Kids would write in and say, can you do this, do that? But one thing they did in the intro to Zoom was they would have, um, they would say their names and do a little uh, gesture to represent <laughs> themselves. And Bernadette's was, I'm Bernadette. And then there'd be this sort of like weird, like Celeste playing, going, bling, bling, bling. <laughs> and then she would do this magical um, arm movement where it looked like her arms were uh, liquid and kind of could cross bone through bone magically. She told me that she was almost ashamed of bringing her Chinese American background onto the set of WGBH in Boston. She was trying to be assimilated but Christopher Sarson, who produced Zoom, encouraged her, no, bring something in that represents who, who you are. And Bernadette's father taught her this move from Chinese opera. And normally you'd be holding swords. So that would be one of those sword tricks where you're crossing swords, but she just did it, yes, again, with no visual cues for your podcast audience. What kind of podcast is this, Marissa? It's a good for people with imaginations who grew okay. up in so the imagine, early 70s imagine, like I did. Imagine Marissa is uh, now waving her kitchen utensils like they are swords from the Chinese opera. And so the idea was she simply learned this move from her father and did it without swords. And it had this mesmerizing effect. And she was almost sheepish about performing it. And then it became arguably the most popular and memorable little clip from that show in its seven year history. Absolutely. Um, can you still find Zoom on YouTube for those under the okay. age of 50? I, I, I would um, just like type in Zoom WGBH or Zoom 1970s and you can find it and it's awesome. It's so, awesome. Yeah. People should definitely watch it. Um, you 
um, just to let you know, to let the listeners know at home that in honor of Sunny Days um, and Sesame Street and oh, my birthday um, and you, um, I created a Cookie Monster-ish cookie for this podcast, awesome. which is, um, I made a few, here's some I prepared earlier because I learned to do that on Zoom. Um, it's a soft peanut butter whole wheat you know, because the 70s, um, there's no wheat germ anywhere near this. <gasps> and, and what no one can see at home is, and I, Cookie Monster has now appeared in David's house. And I think if he could, he would love this cookie. It's got butterscotch chips cookie and it has chocolate chip. Yum, yum. We tried to reach your screen. You're so <laughs> Marissa. Cookie, yes. this has no nutritive value in it and all the moms at home would be really pissed because it's just a lot of delicious sugar and sweet in it sorry well for, for listeners again we're doing the worst podcast episode ever because we're doing all visual stuff i actually have a vintage fisher price cookie monster puppet on my left hand but since you bring up nutrition value um did i ever tell you that when i was researching this book the University of Maryland has the whole archive of the Children's Television Workshop, which oh, is the that produced Sesame Street. And one of my favorite things about reviewing those archives were the letters. They got hundreds or thousands of letters every day from moms and dads giving them feedback on the early seasons of Sesame Street. And Cookie Monster, it might not surprise you, was controversial for a variety mm -hmm. of reasons. Partly for that sort of fragmented caveman <laughs> syntax that he used and partly because he was eating cookies. And you know, for the reasons he said, well, they're not nutritional. I actually have a letter here uh, from 1972, 49 years ago from a concerned mom in Toronto saying, I am writing through you, to you through Sesame Street. Would you please, please pass along my opinion? I would like to see Cookie Monster changed to Apple Freak or, or Fruit Monster. It goes on. It is an unusual cookie that is better for you than a piece of fruit. Making children think cookies are fun to eat isn't fair to us mothers. I hope some consideration is given to this. <laughs> I, I kind of like Apple Freak. I, I love Apple Freak. Apple I will. Freak could have coexisted with Co Cookie Monster. They should they have, have Apple Freak. Exactly. Yeah. And I hate, hate to insist that these are fun, these cookies that I'm showing everyone and that you can make at home with a recipe that I will post on my website are fun to eat. No, these will cause you great anguish and pain <laughs> only after you eat a lot of them. Um, no, Cookie Monster- not fair to us mothers. That's what she said. I mean, the kids are not happy, but she said, well, it's not fair to us mothers. And were there other letters like, like condemning him or what other things? I mean, how was it met when it first came out? Well, I think, you know, most people, well, actually it's interesting how Cookie Monster was generated because Jim Henson got involved in Sesame Street. He was already a super wealthy young man because he made a fortune uh, in advertising. He did coffee commercials for the Wilkins coffee brand in Baltimore, and he was doing La Choy, the ersatz can Chinese food. He was making millions as, in his twenties. And so then he comes along to Sesame Street when he's around 30, and he basically decided that I, if I'm going to work in public educational TV, it's a bad look for me to work in advertising as well. So he forswore all of that lucrative work to work on Sesame Street. And interestingly, one of the last 
commercials he ever did. And he later did a couple more, but what's sort of when he banished it as a regular part of his life. He did a commercial for a Frito-Lay snack product called Munchos. And there was actually a monster called the Munchos monster who came along and said, me like Munchos. <laughs> and then, and he was, the, the, the Munchos monster was kind of lavender colored, but otherwise looked exactly the same. And then cut to a year later, they're doing Sesame Street. Uh, the, the same Muppet has been re-dyed blue. And this Muppet has switched its preference from savory to sweet snacks. Hence the birth of Cookie Monster. He originally liked munchos. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I think he, he stands out better as a blue, um, a blue puppet. Anyway, um, the thing that struck me about your book was a lot of things. Actually, there are a lot of parts that really stood out to me, and it was it's much more, as you say, than the nostalgia of it. But it's talking about um, what the kind of the, the, the movement, the children's liberation movement, I think you call it, yes. that gave birth to, um, you know, what I just think of as fluffy Muppets that entertained me as a kid was really like um, something that was born out of the 60s, like all the other cultural movements of the time. Yeah, it's directly consequential of everything that was brewing in the 60s. I mean, it was, it was a time not unlike now in a lot of ways and that you had um, an uncommonly progressive government. You had Lyndon Johnson trying to enact these enormous great society programs to alleviate poverty and uh, imbalances, inequality in education. And you also had um, both chambers of Congress were had democratic majorities, way more so than today. And then you also had activism going on. You had the anti-war movement, you had um, the feminist movement, and you had civil rights movement. And this was almost something that um, people who were young parents at the time took up as, this is our corner of the movement. And so mm -hmm. they said, what can we do? How can, and the other thing that's happening is TV is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger progressively from the fifties through the sixties into the seventies. So I think, I think by the time Sesame Street came along, the average American kid was watching some absurd amount of TV, like five or six hours of TV a day. And they thought it was cartoons and, and uh, and, and, and you know, like cowboy shoot 'em ups and whatever. And, they thought, and, and so Joan Gans Cooney and Lloyd Morissette, for example, who started Sesame Street said, how can we harness uh, harner, <laughs> of, of, this, of this addictive medium for good and for education without it being sort of solemn and boring. And, yeah, and that, oh, that's another like current that was course in all this. It's like psychedelia and rock music and kind of like, yellow submarine and Peter Max like groovy silliness and I think Jim Henson's Muppets have a lot of that too. Yeah. Technicolor um, freak out nature of it all. Uh, Cooney and um, him. Yeah. yeah. He 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 that he had like a background in the OSS that he brought to this that Mollet had that. Well he it, um, Lloyd Morris said he was mentored Morissette. by people with a background in the OSS. That's that's the last little tributary of social uh, history that I'm going to throw in here is that <laughs> psychology, which had always been kind of stigmatized by Americans, like, you know, it, 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 mental health, who wants to talk about that? Yeah, still. Became, the social sciences and psychology in particular became much more accepted in the 60s. And Lloyd Morissette was a trained psychologist who was also working for the philanthropic Carnegie Corporation. Yeah, and you should also, my father was a psychologist, a um, turtleneck wearing, 
socks with sandals psychologist listening ginsburg reading you know clove cigarette smoking (laughs) edna saint malay Mr. Rock, Dr. Rockcop was, was a <laughs> hepcat, is what you're saying, right? Total hepcat. But anyway, just the idea that child, early childhood development, that phrase, which is so common now to anyone who has kids, that phrase did not exist until the early 60s. And that was Lloyd Morissette's remit, was to like, how can we use the new psychology studying early childhood development to help kids in need? Mostly at the time they were thinking about black kids in like inner city New York or St. Louis or Boston. And Joan Gans Cooney was not even interested in kids programming at the time. She was interested in using TV to alleviate the effects of poverty, whether by raising awareness or actually directly helping people. And so it was one of those things where they were at a dinner party and he was saying, child psychology TV. And she's thinking, "Um, alleviating alleviating poverty TV. And it's that Reese's peanut butter cup commercial moment where it's like, you put chocolate in my peanut butter, you put peanut butter in my chocolate, it's a perfect match. And from that dinner party, they decided to combine their disciplines and it took three years, but out of that came Sesame Street, November 69, when you were years old. <laughs> I was not conscious then, I just wanna point that out to people, you're even ageless. though I was- Ageless, <laughs> I'm telling you. Ageless, yes. I was very young, I just, I, I undoubtedly was watching TV though. Um, the, how they decided on who the characters would be was fascinating to me. You talked a lot to Loretta Long, who was Susan, who I, mm-hmm. if she walked into this room right now, I would recognize her, right? I mean, right. some yeah. of these people sort of raised me. Yeah. And Gordon, Gordon himself was a former teacher too, or? Gordon was a producer and writer on the show, Matt Robinson. So he, was, Robinson. Actually, he was not really an actor. He was kind of reluctantly coaxed into being a cast member because they thought he was so right. He had the right presence. Loretta Long was, an, was a teacher and an entertainer. And she was a young woman at the time. She played Susan, who's kind of the, the maternal black figure on, on the show in the early years. And the story she told me that I like the best is so great because we all forget that there was a time when Sesame Street didn't exist. So we didn't all have this common point of reference of Ernie and Bert and the stoop and this weird inner city, slightly dingy, uh, you know, view in, into, into a certain world, a certain urban neighborhood. And so she gets this job, she auditions, only black woman to audition, by the way, for the part of Susan. It wasn't explicitly conceived as a black woman originally, but Susan gets the part, or Loretta Long gets the Susan part. She calls her parents who are back home on their farm in Michigan. And remember, this is 1969. So she calls her parents, and, I got a TV show. And they're like, great, tell us about the TV show. She said, well, I'm going to be sitting on this stoop all day talking to this eight foot tall giant yellow bird. And she said, then the phone got real quiet. And I immediately regretted saying what I said. And she said, they obviously thought that I was having some sort of drug induced hallucination. Um, and then she said, I'm so glad I didn't tell them about Oscar. So if I'd gone and said, and then this thing's going to jump out of a trash can and yell at you. She said, they would have come on the train and taken me home, done an intervention. So that's the whole thing. It's like Oscar the Grouch and Big Bird were not household names. They weren't part of the common vernacular of not just America, but the world. And so this all had to be created from scratch, you know, 50 odd years ago. And everything about like was, ended up being very well crafted down to like, Mr. Hooper being the avuncular <laughs> um, sort of uh, nice Jewish man who ran the 
the shop. Mr. The shop. Um, the idea of when Maria and what was her husband's name? Luis. Luis, sorry. Maria and Luis came on. How far into the show was that? That was season three. And that was again because the Children's Television Workshop, to their credit, and this is such a lesson for this moment we're living in now. Joan Gans Queenie was such a good listener when people said, will you just listen? Will you just hold your tongue and listen? She listened. And Sonia Manzano, who played Maria, she, when I interviewed her, we were sitting across a table at a diner on New York's Upper West Side. And we talked to, I said, it's so amazing that she listened. She banged the table and she said, that's the most important thing in your book. White people do not listen. Joan Gans Cooney was the rare exception. She was a woman who listened. And it is important because basically what happened was before season three, all these Hispanic groups were saying, great, you're representing black people. You're representing white people. Where the hell are we? And they weren't saying it politely. They were kind of mad. Like this show is supposed to be progressive and represent all of us and we're being ignored. And it was a contentious meeting that she took with activists from uh, LA, from Texas, from Florida, from New York, yeah. but she listened. And then she said, you know what, you're right. And in fact, they introduced three characters that season. The third was played by the actor Raul Julia. His character never quite took, but Luis and Maria hung on, not just did they hang on, they, they hung on for more than 40 years on that show. And Raul Julia luckily went on to have some sort of a career yeah, afterwards. He, he failed at Sesame Street, but he otherwise did really well, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, can we talk about one of my favorite characters who did not last a long time on Sesame Street and the kind of the struggles behind it, which is Roosevelt Franklin. My favorite Muppet ever, yes. My favorite Muppet. Well, I mean, Cookie Monster, obviously. But for me, <laughs> I also, I went to Franklin school so to me, I just, every day it was like Roosevelt Franklin by elementary school, and I'm not yeah. going to sing it now, even though this is an, you know, an oral um, medium. Yes. <laughs> that one. Um, and, uh, but tell me this story. Tell everyone, because because I know it because I read your book, um, the story of Roosevelt Aren't Franklin. Smug? Yeah, I no, I am really smug. I'm a smug, elite person from the Northeast, which are the people that made Sesame Street. Right, and if that's actually the ad for my book that I think I said, if you want to carry yourself with the smugness of Marissa Rothbaugh, read this. That is actually on the back of the book. It is, it is. It's a blurb from- um, <laughs> Joan Gant Cooney. <laughs> Joan Gant Cooney, yeah, exactly. I, I was gonna say Tom Hanks, but whatever. Um, Roosevelt Franklin was the creation of Matt Robinson, who played Gordon on the show, and as I said, was also a writer and producer. During the first season, um, he, contended to Joan Gans Cooney and Jim Henson that there's not really a Muppet who represents black experience. And Jim Henson's response initially was, well, I mean, the Muppets don't have color except the color of the felt they're made out of. You know, they're, they're not, they're not, they don't have racial identities. And Matt Robinson said, all due respect, the default setting, because all the puppeteers, the puppet operators, the Muppets, are white people and most of them men. So the default setting for a Muppet as its character is developed is a white man. And again, this is about listening. Jim Henson listened and said, you know what, you're right. And then really unusually, because most Muppets are very organically developed, especially in those days by Jim Henson, Frank Oz, Jerry Nelson, and the other Muppet operators. This was one where Matt Robinson said, I want a kid who's gonna speak in a kind of urban pattern jive, if you will, 
It's a terrible term, but it does seem to describe precisely that early 70s pattern that he spoke in. And, and the idea was that this kid would represent, if you're a young black kid watching at home, well, this is what Matt Robinson said. He said, when a kid turns four or five, a black kid, which is exactly the target demographic of Sesame Street in that era. He said, that's when a kid realizes that he's black or she's black as opposed to white or something else. They should have a positive identification with that. They should able be able to see themselves or, or versions of their neighbors or their parents or their relatives represented on screen. And it was controversial because, because he spoke in a so-called street pattern some of the more bourgeois black people who worked as executives at Sesame Street, such as their community outreach person, Evelyn Payne Davis, and one of their consultants, a teacher named Jane O'Connor, they did not like Roosevelt, frankly. They thought he was too, quote unquote, urban, too down market. And, they, and Jane O'Connor, again, in the minutes to a meeting I found at the University of Maryland's archive, wow. um, she, 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 she says, we've been trying to get away from that image for years. Now, this is all lost on the kids watching home. We just saw this great, wonderful Muppet who would perform. He's a little purple guy with a shock of black hair <laughs> doing these wonderful, wonderful songs that they could, like, they wrote these great songs for him that sounded like Stax records. They were, they were like soul and R&B. And he would teach counting and how to cross the street by looking both ways, all this great stuff. And if you were a kid watching at home, it was win-win in terms of, racial identity, because if you're a white kid, this is kind of an introduction to black culture. If you're a black kid, and again, we have the data to prove it, you do see yourself. Two of the people I interviewed just to uphold this truth <laughs> are um, Questlove of The Roots, who wrote the forward to my book, and uh, April Rain, who uh, started the Oscar So White hashtag and movement. And they were both born circa 1969, 70, 71. So they were the right age. And they both said Roosevelt Franklin was the first time they saw themselves on TV. So mission accomplished, but- But he didn't last long. Yeah, because again, this is, these are the perils of being a good listener. Maybe not the perils, but one of the, one of the mitigating factors or, or what the, the opposite, the, the um, you know, complicating factors of, of being a good listener is Joan Gans Cooney really sat there and heard out her black uh, collaborators on the show, and there were two camps, kind of the pro-Roosevelt and anti-Roosevelt. And in this case, she came down on the anti-Roosevelt side, which to me was the wrong call, but you know, in the moment. So they phased him out, sadly. It makes me sad, especially when, um, you know, talk about good listening. You mentioned that, I guess, does Susan, voice the uh, voice Robbins, I mean, uh, Roosevelt, Robin Robin his, his, his mom. No. Oh, uh, oh, yes. <laughs> um, mom, yes, and that was actually another, uh, yeah, we, even this is how detailed and how good a list, oh, you're doing it right now. Uh, again, really good visual podcast work, Marissa. It's a cue for you, David, oh, it's, it's a oh, cue for you. you. I'm trying to help you. Oh, okay, <laughs> message received. <laughs> Loretta Long was, was voicing, not actually doing the puppet operation, but voicing Roosevelt's mother. But she said to Jim Henson, you know, you've got the posture of that Muppet all wrong. If she's playing a black mother, she needs to have her hip, her hand on her hip with her elbow, elbow pointed directly outward. Um, and so he actually rewired Roosevelt's mother, the Muppet, so that she would have 
what Loretta uh, describes as a more black woman posture to her. So again, the, the level of listening, and actually I wanna share with you, I have one other good letter um, about how they got a lot of feedback on stuff they did. This isn't about Roosevelt, this is about the Count. Count von Count, ah, ah, ah. Ah, ah, ah. So he is introduced in 1973, and initially, those the first sketches with him had a lot of um, cobwebs and dark lighting and wind sounds, that sort of thing. And parents freaked out. There's a lot of negative uh, feedback. And there's one that I have to read for you because it, it's about Cookie Monster and Count. Oh, good. Dear sirs, <laughs> this is a mom in Maryland or something. I would like to inform you that you have a number of two-year-old viewers. They are very impressionable at this age and your Cookie Monster can and often is frightening to them. Count von Count is an evil looking character and is frightening. In this regard, my two-year-old son has begun to have nightmares about your program. He awakens screaming, no, no, Cookie, no! <laughs> As a result, no more Sesame Street. So, <laughs> no, no, Cookie, no! <laughs> I do, I have similar dreams, but they're just about giant cookies and never mind. Um, like the ones you're baking today. Exactly. Yes. But I want to know um, how that kid is now. <laughs> I wish you could do a follow-up and we could find that kid and find out if he still has bad dreams, if he let his own kids watch Sesame Street. Did you let your kids watch Sesame Street? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. My, my kids are now in their early 20s, but they, they were um, they watched oh, Close to my age. <laughs> yes, <Sorry>. yes. <laughs> of course, darling. Yes. <laughs> But did they enjoy Sesame Street in the same way you did? They did. I mean, I, just because even in the 90s and the early 2000s, there's already that fragmented media universe where they had other choices. They could watch Nickelodeon and they could watch Disney and, um, and so forth. So, so I don't think Sesame Street was as central to them as it is to us. But it was a big deal. Absolutely was a big deal. Yeah, I mean, having worked at Nickelodeon for a large part of my early career. Um, I, you know, I, I actually, but I made my kids um, watch Sesame Street because to me it was so important and it was so kind of pure, if you like. And I realized that any Elmo segment was exactly the length that a mom needed to take a shower. <laughs> yes. So you could just plop Junior in front of Elmo. Elmo would scream at him for 10 minutes. And then I, you know, I could emerge from the shower clean and the kid was probably safe. Yeah. And the, and <laughs> the other thing is that the music was so good. Like, it was nice for me to catch up on all the songs they'd written since whatever, since 1970, when I stopped watching <laughs> the show. Um, and then to catch up and say, oh, you know, right through the 80s and 90s, they were still cranking out really good Sesame Street tunes. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda said that the Sesame Street songbook is the closest thing we have to a great American children's songbook. And he's right, because, you know, at least for, for uh, a significant chunk of the population, everyone knows those songs and can still sing them. Yeah, and, and I hope everybody, everybody I was going to say. I've got two eyes, one, two, all those songs. And of course, and I, I um, would like to sing for you, Menomina. Right, right. And, right. And you're going to, right? I'm going to, but that, I'm going to close out the show that way. Okay. Um, but I could still. And C I is could, for Cookie. I mean, my God, that should be the theme song for your show. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And I named my daughter Kate with a C because C is for Katie. I mean, it's all there. Let's just say it's all there. Um, you, uh, one of the things that preceded, um, and I don't want to leave this um, before, you know, I don't want to forget about the other gentle influence in my early youth, which was Mr. Rogers, who mm -hmm. preceded Sesame Street. And I think I, I worry that if I watched him today, I wouldn't feel the same way. I'd be like, he's kind of creepy. But at the time, I didn't assure me that I wouldn't find him creepy. What's weird is that I had the opposite process to you. Oh. I actually found him strange when I was a kid because, you know, I grew up around rambunctious Jews. We're like, get the hell in the car. <laughs> and then you had this really gentle man uh -huh. who also happened to be a Presbyterian minister <laughs> talking really slowly in dulcet tones with this keyboard music playing in the background. And I thought, this is so weird. I've never seen an adult behave like this. And so I, I liked Mr. Rogers, but I didn't love that program when I was a kid. But then as I reviewed his stuff, as I got older, I thought this man's brilliant. This man has the way in to connecting with kids through their emotional intelligence. Talk about early childhood development. Like he just, he had that insight. And so I actually think it holds up better. It's almost, you know, a lot of adults still watch his, his reruns because they do give you, especially in the last five years, they do offer some psychological balm and solace and all that. I, I agree, actually. I don't find him creepy in the slightest. I um, I find him incredibly soothing. I like the fact that his also, his um, demeanor and his who he is holds up at, over time. No creepy stories came out. He just turned out to be a nice, decent man and kind of makes me want to cry when I think about him or I hear stories about you him. Know, I don't think it's an accident that like, in the space of three years, Morgan Neville's documentary about Fred Rogers comes out, and then Marielle Heller's movie with Tom Hanks playing Mr. Rogers comes out, and then my book comes out. I think that's a collective generational yearning for, for a gentler time or a more, a more like respectful and uh, civil time. Um, but not, a, not, not like a straight-jacketed 1950s version of that, sort of a, a more sort of furry, psychedelic 60s, 70s version of that. Yeah, there was nothing sort of buttoned up about um, Mr. Rogers in his way. He was, you know, he was a, a leader in having um, African American like characters on a show when nobody else did that sort Arthur of thing. Clemens. Yeah, that was a big one in '68 uh, to have Francois Clemens go on the show, play a black guy playing a policeman first of all, and then that scene where they're both hot and they put their feet together in the in the sort of kiddie pool with the hose running, and so you see pair of brown feet next to a pair of white feet and just that image alone you know if you're if you're an impressionable preschooler that's you see that as normal and you retain that as normal so that's that's the, right and so. and there was no beating you over the head with the fact that you look brown feet and white feet you know yeah. it was just feet yeah and i think that was it's one of the things to to intuit that yeah this this is this is humanity this this is life and not not right. beat us over the head can I, can I talk to you about something that I carry with me that's psychologically traumatic though? Oh, please. I actually was hoping that we'd get to that point. I'd like to get to that point with all of my guests. But, but is it something have, I did? Is it my yeah. fault? Oh. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, you're putting your cookies in the oven. Do you, do you have them on parchment paper? I do. I have them on um, organic parchment paper, non-bleached parchment paper. So it's like very brown and looks very wholesome. Well, which is, I, I just like the, image of wholesomeness when in 
fact, no. When you have that super bourgeois uh, splash guard behind your sink and everything. Oh, like it's, it's, yeah, no one can see that really, but it's super bougie. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna tell you what, I, what has tra traumatized me. I have the Cookie Monster puppet back on listeners, is that <laughs> on Sesame Street, you know, Frank Oz was Cookie Monster and they, they didn't use prop plastic cookies, they used real cookies. And so when he eats a cookie, he goes, hum, 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 hum. you see it, you see him masticating it and it's flying <laughs> everywhere. And, 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 but all there is is this expanse of black felt in the mouth. And so genuine cookies are like just being crushed and falling all over the place on, on the, the Sesame Street set. And I'm wondering like, did those cookies go to waste? What happened to them? Like, did they have the three second rule at the children's television workshop where like the director goes and cut. And then suddenly Frank Oz bends over and like because <laughs> it, it really bothered, it bothered me as a kid. And that's something I, I still have not found the answer to. What happened to those, those willy nilly masticated and tossed on the floor cookies? That the cookie well, I think, I think it's important for people to realize that those were real cookies. First of all, I think that's an important fact that we all have to recognize. And secondly, they were beautiful cookies that always had the chocolate chips perfectly arranged on them, which my current cookies I thought of doing and I didn't. But the tr but but I always felt bad for Cookie because he never seemed to swallow the cookies. Yeah, yeah, that was an issue too. And yeah. um, I'm still processing it. And I think it's why I have issues with um, completing tasks because the monster did not have a, a gullet through which to process the cookies. And do you feel that you, um, have a gullet now? Have you developed your own, in a sense, mental gullet for which to process things through, David? You know, I had a mullet in the 80s, but I don't have a gullet still. Not a, not a uh, gullet worthy of, of um, you know, not, not a fully developed gullet in the way that, that, that was where they failed in terms of early childhood development. They failed gosh. in gullet development. I'm really sorry to hear that that's the kind of scar that you've been left with because, it, and maybe you coming out today and talking about that, we are talking about mental health. You no, know, they failed to teach me the letters G-I. <laughs> um, you are the guy who also wrote a book called The United States of Arugula, which really, truly, like, I'll be like reading along, and they're like, and of course, in this world famous, uh, highly seminal um, book, um, what drove you to write this book? Like, speaking of food, basically, was it some lusting for great cookies? Kinda. It, it was kind of a, a well, it, it's not unlike Sunny Days. Neither book is a first person book, but they're both exploring things that kind of dominated my childhood. And to some degree, since we're both from New Jersey and contemporaries, your childhood is that uh, we lived in this era when, when, the enjoyment of food went from sort of this passive experience to this more engaged experience of like parents trying to cook out of Julia Child and watching Graham Kerr on the Galloping Gourmet and then evolving and progressing to, you know, well, Craig Claiborne and Pierre Fernet in the New York Times and, yep. and, uh, and, and then the Moosewood cookbook and then it just kept going and going and going. And, you know, we grew up with Wonder Bread and iceberg lettuce. And I actually can remember specific years when sushi happened, when arugula mm -hmm. happened, when 12 grain bread happened, when sun-dried tomatoes happened. So if these things happened, it means there must be stories to tell behind their happening. So I want to stitch that all together into a cultural history of, of how Americans cooked, shopped, ate, 
dined out on food. And you you mentioned the Moosewood Cookbook, and you also you know not content just to write these books. You became a lyricist recently, well, kind of recently, I guess, in writing "Kiss My," if you'll pardon the expression, "Kiss My Aztec." Is that true? Very. Yes. <laughs> well, "Kiss My Aztec" is is the sort of questionably, unfortunately titled musical, but it's a really good musical that I've collaborated on with, um, among others, John Leguizamo. He approached me because we're friends about doing this, this um, musical comedy set in the Aztec empire at the time of Spanish conquest, but in a kind of Monty Python Spamalot way, meaning it's, an, it's, a, it's a historic setting, but the, the humor is very contemporary. And in our show, the Aztecs actually beat the conquistadors, but we, don't, we know that didn't happen in real life, but in our show, they do. And anyway, so John enlisted me as a lyricist, which is the greatest fun. And it just shows that even when you're 50 years old, there's still time for reinvention and you can do new things. And this is a new kind of writing for me to become a lyricist, having a ball doing it. So then I thought, once you get that taste, Marissa, once you get that little taste of the business, the show business, yeah. once you get that show taste, business, you want more. Your, pe your people have always been in show business. You, you want another hit of that show <laughs> business. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so what happens is, yeah, exactly. Um, you rub so, it on your upper gum, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you want some glitter to rub on your upper gum and, and some jazz hands. And so I thought, I want to do more shows. And indeed, I'm working on a couple that are in development, but there's one that was kind of in development before, in the before times, and it's kind of a maybe. But I, I had the idea, and don't laugh at me. I said, what if, what if I developed? I really like to laugh at you, though. Okay. With you, I'm sorry. I, I said, what if, what if I did the Moosewood Cookbook, the musical? <laughs> it sounds stupid, I know. No, no, it cracks me up. People will love that, I think. Don't you people think so? Before I forget, before we get into the Moosewood Cookbook, I want to know, because people are going to hear about Kiss My Aztec, and they're like, oh my God, I need something. I need to watch that. Can they see it on YouTube or someplace? You know, I don't think they can right now because of... Um, union rules, but I mean, the long and short of it is we did two great productions of it on the West Coast in 2019, then everything shut down in 2020 and uh, watch this space for, um, you know, looks like in 2022, we're gonna get back up again um, on the East Coast, so. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, so and then the Moosewood Cookbook, the musical. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> it sounds like a stupid idea, but I thought- No, you know, I think it sounds hilarious. I'll tell you why, because mm -hmm. generationally, and again, it's all about relitigating your childhood and thinking about all the things that, that influenced you. And in Moosewood Cookbook came out in the late 70s. And my mom and sister were both going through a very crunchy phase at that point. And I always conflated their cooking all day on weekends out of the Moosewood Cookbook with the Roaches' first album playing. The Roaches, do you know who they are? Yeah, I do. So they are, again, from New Jersey, three sisters who... Um, kind of especially in the late 70s and early 80s got, were getting a lot of attention, though they kept performing right until Maggie the eldest died a few years ago. Um, but they did these wonderful, clever songs that kind of defied genre, but with great three-part harmonies. And I got this idea of setting a show in the year 1979 of these three sisters. It's all, it all takes place over one day. Three sisters cooking together, young women, loosely based on the roaches, but also conflating me and my siblings to some degree and other people's experience. And the idea is that was a real transitional time because it was the end of the hairy furry 70s and mm -hmm. they didn't know it, but they were on the verge of the uptight yuppie 80s. 
And the idea is that also this day, while they're cooking, changes their lives forever too in ways I won't get into here. But the idea is what if we had these three sisters singing like roaches like songs while preparing these moose with recipes. And like in my <laughs> fantasy, you would have the Heim sisters playing them because it's perfect. They're three Jewish sisters who look like they were teleported from the 70s with their long center parted hair. And, and they're- Yeah, yeah. I'm center parting my hair right now. Yeah, go on. Their hair is that real straight 70s hair too. So they, 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 they have the look. So I thought, I mean, I'm sure the Heim sisters who sell out arenas have better things to do than nonprofit theater, but, but one can dream. I actually approached Suzy Roach, the youngest of the Roach sisters, and um, somehow- Were you she, nervous? Did you just like, let me throw this out to you, yeah. Of course I was nervous. She agreed to meet with me. I threw this idea, Moosewood Cookbook. Oh, well, first of all, I approached Molly Katzen, who wrote the Moosewood Cookbook, and she gave yeah. me a lesson to at least give it a shot. Just give it a shot. I, she, she thought, this is hilarious. I love it. Give it a shot. Then I approached Suzy Roach, and we actually collaborated on one song just as a sort of tryout thing. And then, you know, pandemic happened. So I don't know where this is gonna go, but this one song, cause I actually have a clip of it for you. Um, oh, great. It's just an acoustic demo of Suzy Roach and her acoustic guitar. But the idea is this is the youngest sister singing, the one that Alana Haim is going to play, of course, mm-hmm. um, when, when they agree to do it. The idea is that she is the youngest and she's the most forward facing sister. The other two have more of that 70 sensibility. She's looking ahead. She, does, she, she doesn't want to have long center part of the hair anymore. She wants to get into punk and new wave. And the mother signed them up to work at the local health food co-op and she hates doing that. And she's cooking Molly Katzen's apricot almond bread. And she's looking at this sludgy brown bag of unsulfured apricots. They're so has- ugly that she has to use for her recipe because they came from the co-op. And, um, and here's Suzy, and again, I got her permission. This would normally have three-part harmonies and a full band behind it, but this is just her acoustic demo and I think it turned out great, so have a listen. Unsulfured apricot, you look like you came off the street, stuck to the soles of my feet, aesthetically antithetical to anything, anyone, anywhere would want to eat. Folks at the George Street Co-op, they never seem all of a piece. They're skeletal or they're obese, heretically toxic and way too obnoxious to sell you on wellness and honey from free-ranging bees. I'm not so sure I fit with your mellow vibe. I like Carly and James all right. But they are not my tribe Oh, I want to cut my hair Breathe the dirty city air Maybe work as an au pair For John and Yoko And take the local down To the lower east side Then Richard Hell would tell me How to live the life He'd get down on his scabby knee and ask me to be his wife. And that would make me miss his hell. And you know damn well that mom and dad wouldn't fell. But I'm talking out my ass, cause I can't get past that I'm dull as a butter knife. 
fat, unsulfured apricot, virtuous lumpen' and sweet, reactive to moisture and heat, dutiful, pliable, pitiful, and stuck in one place, like a caged parakeet, unsulfured apricot. That's hilarious. The line I take away from it, though, is one I think you might have been describing me, which was virtuous, lumpen, and sweet. <laughs> moisture and heat. Um, <laughs> you are uh, virtuous and sweet. And kind of lumpen, but that's neither here <laughs> nor there. Um, You're ageless. I said it before. <laughs> yes, yeah, so is, but unsulfured apricots are too. Sorry. No, 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 because they're unsulfured. They're not preserved, so so that's why they're brown and sludgy instead of like that yellow orange that sun-made dried dried apricots have. And so they, really? they they're reacted to moisture and heat. It's the very next line of the song. Did you listen to the song? I listened to the whole song twice. Um, and everybody, anybody else who's at home listening to this can just hit replay, and they get all the words, which are brilliant. If I asked you to recall the smell of a 1970s health food store, could you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a really, to me, super unappetizing smell. Well, it's kind of vaguely yeasty, I would say. Um, and this, and a, a sharp undercurrent of patchouli to me. Patchouli, and which, which is also masking the undercurrents of body odor because people <laughs> weren't using deodorants. So they're using patchouli. And then you've got that yeasty smell, which is partly the foods because they're not preserved. So there's a lot of active cultures in the air. And, and in the, the people, and all the people. The people. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. That was it. Was very I, healthy. <laughs> I'm going to be writing a doorstop, uh, thousand-page book called "The '70s: The Yeasty Decade." <laughs> Simon and Schuster. It'll come out in the year 2050. Exactly, and each page will be slightly moist, so that if you can grow your own yeast at home with the book. It'll be like an added attraction. Shame you couldn't have come out with that this year. With like, you know, if you crumple up this ball of paper and put it in water, you can have your own sourdough starter in three weeks. That, that's actually, you know, people always ask me to prognosticate about the future of publishing. And I think it is in- Wait, um, one moment, please. Um, David, I was wondering if you had any um, prognostications for the future of publishing. You know, I have two words for you. Active cultures. <laughs> We're going to have books. Just, you, you, you want that tactile, sensual experience. You don't want to read it on a Kindle. You don't want to read it online. You want to have a book with active cultures growing in the book that you can then turn, um, feed with flour and water and turn into bread. Starter and then bread. <laughs> Starter and then bread. Yes. The perfect book. <laughs> Eat this book, right? Hold it, book the rings. Yes. Instead of steal this book, it will be eat this book. Yes, bake this book. <laughs> bake this book in the oven. Um, as a boy from Central Jersey, you've also- no, you're, um, you're not a boy from Central Jersey. No, you're a boy from Central Jersey. You were about to Jersey. use a Dalen participle. You are about to say as a boy from, no, no, go on. I'm sorry. As a boy, as you, as you, <laughs> no, you're just, you. Um, speaking of being a boy from, as you are a boy from, do you still agree that Central Jersey exists? as a person from Central Jersey? Because there, there's a lot of debate about that. You know, it's strange that that's even become a debate because- We don't have as much to talk about these days. Well, no, this, because you know, I grew up in Central New Jersey without this ever being questioned as a thing. You know, in the 70s, 
it wasn't like central New Jersey was this new term developed by real estate people, kind of like Cobble <laughs> Hill was developed to sell uh, Red Hook townhouses and apartments. Um, you know, we, I grew up calling it central New Jersey uh, and it like the home news, which is our local newspaper in New Brunswick, um, called it central New Jersey. So I don't know where this controversy comes from. There's, a, there's at least a 60 year paper trail of central New Jersey being called central New Jersey. In how quickly we forget. Um, you um, have been, a, now that we've solved these problems, um, <laughs> I have to say, <laughs> you have been a true joy to um, share my birthday with today. <gasps> Kermit the Frog has just appeared. Um, of all my... <laughs> oh, I heard you have a birthday. Kermit, I came, I came fully armed, pardon the expression, with my Kermit and Cookie Monster felt puppets from 1972 to this podcast. That's, that's commitment. That is true commitment. And I appreciate that. And I think our, I, our listeners at home will also kind of sense that. Um, is Grover by any chance there? Because I did have a lot oh, of he's in the other room. He's here in the house. He's in the other room. Okay, good. At least he's with you. Yes. Because I have, I, maybe it's just blue, but... Cookie Monster and Grover was my favorite. Did you have a favorite as a kid? Well, Roosevelt was my favorite. Roosevelt, but other than Roosevelt, did you also, like once he went away, you had to have somebody else or were you just pining for him? Well, well Kermit is my favorite, but he kind of like transcends the Sesame Street Muppets because he's like the signature Muppet um, of, of everything Henson did. So I'd be with you. I, I would say Grover of the, of the Strictly Sesame Street Muppets. Um, I think one of my great moments of my adult life was at the Montclair Film Festival. Yeah, I'll just throw that one in. Um, Carol Spinney appeared wow. with his, uh, at the appearance of his, uh, the documentary about his life. And he uh, took photographs with me and my kids afterwards with um, Oscar on his uh, arm. And it was, for me, like, you've met lots and lots of very famous people in your time, but for me, and I've met a reasonable number but for me, meeting Carol Spinney and being that close to Oscar the Grouch was mind-blowing. Did you tear up a little? Me? It's very unusual for me to cry. I'm not that kind of person. Mm -hmm. But um, sure. maybe I couldn't actually form sentences. Okay. I, <laughs> I was just. <laughs> I, I am un, unashamed to say that I teared up in the presence of Bob McGrath, um, uh -huh. interviewing this man who's 87 years old, and um, and then he started to cry because I was crying. So, just talking about the long, the, the, the impact that he's had on, on, you know, 50 years of children. And then we both started getting misty and I was like, oh God. I have to say the lumpen may come from the lumpen in my throat because oh. I would actually cry if I, I I'm, I'm heartened to hear it because I would cry if I met Bob too. Yeah. And, I'll, any I'll, of them. I'll, maybe when you post this podcast, I'll post a picture of Bob and me together. Because um, because his wife took a nice picture of us because of our our that moment we had. Triangle Bob, triangle pants, um, <laughs> and and on that that's later Sesame Street. On that note, I thank you for coming this way with me and um, taking me down um, sunny days, and it's Sesame been, Street. It's been a delight, and you know what? what? I know it's your birthday, but sincerely, this podcast is a gift. I've loved every episode of it. So thank you for this podcast. You are a very, very kind person. And the check is in the mail. And I thank you. 
Thank you so much for joining me, David Camp, and Kermit and Cookie Monster for The Secret Life of Cookies this week. You can find my recipes on my website, marissarothkopf.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Marissa Rothkopf. And if you will be so kind, please leave a nice review in the Apple Store. Stay safe, eat cookies, and talk to you again next week.